Well, good morning, everyone. I'm uh, excited by uh, this morning's message. This is uh, the second in our Lenten series called Christ-Centered Means Cross-Centered. So I hope you'll really listen uh, carefully today and really listen to what God might have to say to you uh, through what I say and through the scripture this morning. Our scripture today is from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, if you want to follow along in your own Bible or listen as I read. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. That's from Isaiah 29, 14. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Thanks be to God, for this is his word. Amen. Hey, I want to thank you for indulging me a little bit last week with my uh, Plato demonstration on what the Bible teaches of how Jesus is both fully divine and fully human. Not a half and half split personality, not one more than the other, but as the early church affirmed in what we read in the Nicene Creed, of one being with the Father and yet fully human. And that's important because if we're going to be Christ-centered people, then we have to know who this Christ really is. And, and knowing who Christ is, well, that's the only way to understand what his death on the cross really means. But i got to tell you, I found out this week that Plato is sort of addictive. And uh, maybe I was reliving my childhood or something, but on Monday I just started playing with some Play-Doh. I mean, pastors only work one day a week anyway, so we've got to have do something to fill up the time, you know. So I started making things, and, and I decided to make a little clay man, sort of like this one. Now, I know I have zero artistic talent, okay, zero. But let me tell you, something remarkable happened. On impulse, I sort of brought the little clay man up to my mouth, and I breathed on him. And miraculously, he came to life. He came to life. He was alive. He could walk around. He could move on its own. And not only that, he could think, and he could talk, and he could understand me. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I felt like the woodcarver Geppetto in the, in the story of Pinocchio. This thing I created was alive. It was fantastic. I hope he doesn't fall over there. There we go. Squeeze him down a little bit. Amazing. I thought of all the cool things the two of us could do together. I mean, I promised I would take care of him. I gave him my office to live in. What a wonderful relationship it would be for the both of us. But something happened that I hadn't counted on. My little clay man, he had a will of his own, an independent will, and he wasn't interested 
in my plans. He wanted things. He, he wanted to do things. He wanted Oreo cookies by the bagful and a, and a bottomless glass of milk. He, he wanted to sit in my chair, even though it was way too big for him. He wanted to use my computer all the time to watch Gumby videos on YouTube. And he got sort of demanding. He, he actually wanted to be in charge. If I didn't move fast enough to get him what he wanted, he actually started to get a little ugly. He started tearing up the place. I remember when I was a kid, my neighbor was one time cleaning the ashes out of his fireplace and a squirrel fell down right through the chimney and then sprang into his room. And of course, the, the, the squirrel panicked and with its tree-hugging claws, it could run horizontally around the wall and across the ceiling. Well, my neighbor immediately opened all the doors and windows, but in a five-minute frenzy, that squirrel just tore up every single wall and ceiling in their downstairs. And it was like that with my little man. I mean, he went berserk. I mean, I have a very nice office. I love where I work. I, I love how I've got it arranged. And, and he tore through my office like a tornado, knocking pictures off the walls and spilling books onto the floor. And not only was he destructive to the world that I made, but he ruined his own world, too, that I had given him. And then once when I was out this week, he took one of my favorite pictures of, of me and one of our children from the Amistad Orphanage in Bolivia, Escarlat, and, well, look at what he did to it. I mean, that's just not right. That, that is just not right. He, he, he defaced something that was very important to me. Well, what was I supposed to do? I, I had laid down clear expectations and boundaries. I'd, I'd tried timeouts. I was very patient. I took away privileges. I even threatened to lock him in a drawer if he didn't behave. Nothing worked. He, he wouldn't listen to me at all. It was like all he wanted, he wanted everything I had to offer, and then he wanted me to just get out of the way. He thought I was there to serve him, that he was entitled to whatever I could give him. He wanted a carefree, problem-free, pain-free life. No restraints, no restrictions, no gratitude. So what could I do? (laughs) Problem solved. Well, I hope you saw the imperfect parallels of that little story to our story with God. The creator and his creation. Now, I bet you thought my story was going to end differently. I bet you thought I was going to come up with some way to turn things around for my little clay man. A a plan of salvation, a, a plan of redemption, a plan that would turn rebellion into reconciliation, a plan that would restore that relationship. Because that's what God did for us in Jesus Christ. And God's plan of salvation and reconciliation all revolves around the cross. And that's why being Christ-centered means being cross-centered. Now, several times in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul writes about God's plan of salvation, he uses an unusual word. He uses the Greek word mysterion or mystery. Some modern translations use the word secret, but I I think mystery is better because Paul is trying to help folks to to see that, that this plan of God for our recovery and restoration, this plan of salvation, is something that is almost incomprehensible. He writes to the Colossians, 
in chapter 1 and chapter 2. God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Chapter 2, verse 2. My goal is that you may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God's rescue plan is centered on Jesus Christ, but Paul calls this a mystery. You see, a secret is something when somebody tells you what it is, you've got it. End of story. You know what the secret is. But a mystery is something that you have to figure out. Uh, you may know all the facts, but, but the facts don't tell the whole story. All the pieces may not fit together perfectly in your mind. There's part of your brain that still doesn't quite get it. So a mystery draws you in. It draws you further in, layer upon layer. Just when you think you've got it, there's another twist. A mystery pulls you along as you try to understand it, and you may have to live without not having figured it all out perfectly. And Paul says this mystery of God's salvation is hard for people to unravel. In the passage I read earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says the message of God's salvation in Christ is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, a stumbling block, something that trips people up because the religious leaders of Jesus' day refused to accept that Jesus was their prophesied Messiah. And foolishness, not a joke, not something that's funny that you laugh at, but something that's intellectually stupid. Because the Greek philosophers couldn't imagine or fathom a God of love who could be personally involved with his creation. A stumbling block and and foolishness. That was the reaction to this mystery of God's plan of salvation back then. But today... I don't think that's how people react to the message of God's salvation. If, if you walked up to the average person and said, God loves you, the reaction you would get would probably be something more like a polite yawn. Hardly a ripple. Why? Because most people today think, well, yeah, God is supposed to love me. I mean, that's his job. I am entitled to God's love. I'm special, I'm unique, and God owes me at least that much. Rather than being this earth-shattering declaration of the most profound mystery of human existence, God's love, or God loves you, has become my right, my expectation, my due, something I deserve. I deserve the love of God. And suddenly we become like my little clay man with the expectation that God owes me. God owes me a carefree, problem-free, pain-free life. In our day, people basically think we are entitled to God's love. Another way to look at this is to ask, what do most people think you have to do in order to get into heaven? Most people think that all you have to do to get into heaven is die. All you have to do is die, and you're entitled You're entitled. Not only are you entitled to God's love here and now, but I am also entitled to a blissful eternity. 
maybe even to make up for the way God didn't meet all my expectations and keep me happy in this life. God owes me that much. Do you see how turned around this is? Like the little clay man, we now think that we're at the center of the universe and God is here to serve us. We assume, of course, God is going to love me now and forever. And you'll even hear people say that if they don't get what they want in life, then they just can't believe in a God who would let that happen. They can't believe in a God who who would allow them to suffer or who would allow evil or who would allow bad things to happen. Sort of like a a petulant child on the playground who gets mad and says, I'm just going to take my ball and go home. I've heard people say, well, I can't believe in a God like that. As though not believing in God is somehow going to hurt him. I mean, who are we to talk to God like that. We think we're entitled to God's love. Last week we read a portion of the Nicene Creed, the very first creed adopted by the ancient church that gave definition to the basic beliefs of the Christian faith that I believe kind of set the boundaries of what is Christian and what is not. And we looked at what the Nicene Creed said about the divine and the human nature of Jesus, but listen again to the very first phrase of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. Don't rush past this. Don't just leapfrog over that to get to the good stuff about Jesus Christ. Don't let this just be background noise for you because we can never fully understand the mystery of God's salvation through the cross, if we don't understand first who God is. And he is presented first and foremost as the creator of everything, of all that is seen and unseen. In the study of philosophy, they'll tell you that any definition of the word God in the Judeo-Christian sense means this being who is the uncreated creator. The uncaused cause. The one who stands outside of this material universe. Who stands outside of time. And who is unaffected by both. The phrase that is used is that God is transcendent. Transcendent. He transcends time and space and matter. Because he was the one who created it all. The creator is completely other. Completely different beyond us transcendent. The very first sentence of the Bible tells us how important this is. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it doesn't matter to me at this point how you think God did his creating. Whether you believe it was through a big bang explosion that hurled matter and energy into a void or through billions of years of slow process or six 24-hour days. The point is God is the uncaused cause, and he could create any way he wants. The first of everything, the uncreated creator. And that is, by definition, who God is. Now, think about this with me for a second. The best scientific guess is that right now, the universe contains one sextillion stars. That's a one followed by 21 zeros. I mean, that's a number that is really beyond our comprehension. It's almost as big as the Obama deficit. I'm sorry, I just had to say it. I don't know why. But think about this. The idea 
that the designer of this immense star-studded creation would know that we even exist is beyond our understanding. That the creator of all things, seen and unseen, would actually care about you and about all humanity. That's insane. Think about that. I mean, there are an estimated 200 billion galaxies in the universe. If our entire Milky, Milky Way galaxy and its 400 billion stars just disappeared in an instant, just poof, was gone, that would be as insignificant as a gnat hitting your windshield while going 80 miles an hour down the highway. Insignificant, not noticeable, not even a ripple. And yet the Bible teaches that this God who created 200 billion galaxies knows you inside and out and loves you and acted to restore the creator-creation relationship that had been broken. And he scanned the gulf, he spanned the gulf between infinite God and, and insignificant you through Jesus Christ. You see, the main problem is not that people don't believe in God. Most people do have some kind of belief that there's some supreme being out there who at least got it all started. No, the real problem is that in the words of the title of J.B. Phillips's great book, your God is too small. Your idea of God is way too small. People say they believe in God and they don't understand in the slightest bit what that word really means. We've become too familiar with the word God, too familiar with the words God loves you. They don't think hard enough about that word God, about what it means. God is a big God, the creator of all things, omnipotent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, immutable, immortal, unchanging, immense, transcendent, without beginning or end, whose nature defines what is good. Good is what is in harmony with God's own nature. Evil is what is contrary or in opposition to God's own nature. This creator God determines what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong, what is holy and what is sin, what is just, what is real. By the very nature of his being, God defines what is and what is not. And by the expression of his will, God determines what will and what won't exist. Folks, this creator God calls the shots. He doesn't debate. He doesn't argue. He doesn't need our opinion. And this creator God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us love. He doesn't owe us forgiveness or even existence. The ultimate miracle mystery of the gospel is that this creator God cares at all. That's the real mystery. That's the miracle. That's the first thing we have to get our brains to wrap around. By definition, God is the center of all things. He doesn't owe us anything. And that this being would then take on human flesh and blood to show us love in a personal way. I mean, that should force us to our knees in, in absolute awe, in mind-numbing amazement, in gut-wrenching gratitude. 
Listen to how John begins his gospel with this mystery. John 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Creator God who loves. The meaning of the cross begins with this one truth, an omnipotent creator God who loves his creation. Can we, with our little clay man minds, begin to understand this? On our own, of course not. And that's why Jesus had to become like us so that we could have any hope of understanding the enormous love God has for his creation. At the center of all things, is a God of ultimate holiness and ultimate love. And as we'll discover next week, those two things come together at the cross. Ultimate holiness and ultimate love. How did Jesus say it? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life, John 3.16. So let me ask you, Have you begun to peel back the layers of this mystery? Have you taken the words, God loves you, for granted? Have you taken the fact that this immense, all-powerful, transcendent God even knows who you are? Have you taken that for granted? Maybe up until now, you have, but I hope no longer. Have you felt this incredible announcement reverberate In your heart, this dynamic declaration of creator love, has it ever squeezed your heart? Has it ever made you weak in the knees? Have you ever felt overwhelmed with awe? This is God's great mystery. This is God's good news. This is the gospel of God's love. At the center of the universe is a God who loves. I hope this morning that in some new way, You are amazed by the power of the cross to reveal to you the love that your creator has for you and for all humanity, personalized through Jesus the Christ, and that it will in some way increase your love for the Savior who gave up his position of ultimate power to to spread his arms on a rough wooden cross so that you might really be enveloped by God's grace. God's love is never more amazing than when you look intensely at the cross. Because then all you can do is thank him. Let's pray. Lord, forgive me for taking the words, God loves you, for granted. Not even beginning to think of how astounding those three words are. That you, this immense, transcendent, all-powerful God, would even bother to care about our gnat-sized solar system. And even smaller, tinier, microscopically, each one of us. And yet, that's what Jesus said. And so, Lord, we are so overwhelmed with gratitude. All we can do is love you 
and live for you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.